Well, as we turn to God's Word now, we are uh, continuing forward in Exodus. So this morning we'll take the second half of chapter 4 and also uh, chapter 5. Um, we will skip over uh, just a few verses, just to warn you, skip over a few verses in uh, chapter 4. Of course, not because they're um, unimportant or of little value, but because I don't want to um, keep us in Exodus for many, many months, so I'm trying to do uh, larger sections. So I apologize for skipping over those verses, but I pray that uh, we will be blessed by um, the broader message of these pas- uh, this passage as we look at um, Exodus chapter 4 and 5. So as we'll read in just a moment, here in Exodus, uh, we see that Moses has just left the burning bush that we looked at last week. He returns to Egypt, and this morning we'll read about uh, Moses' very first encounter with Pharaoh. And we'll see that it goes quite poorly, more poorly than anyone was expecting. And uh, the people of Israel are not sure how to react to this setback. They don't know if it means that the Lord is unfaithful, the Lord has done something wrong, or maybe the Lord is going to go about things in a way different than they expected. And so I hope that as we read this, you're able to kind of put yourself in the shoes of the Hebrew people who experienced this great setback from the Lord. And no doubt all of us have experienced various setbacks in our own lives, right? The Lord has not always worked just how we expected him to work. And so in that way, I hope that you can relate to the Hebrew people as we read in this passage and as we'll see that God does have great things planned for us, even in the setbacks that we face. And so let's listen now to the reading of God's word. Uh, Sadie will come for us first, and then Jen will come, and then John, and then Paul will come uh, as we divide this passage into four different sections. So Sadie, feel free to come forward. Exodus four eighteen to 23. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And Yahweh said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And Yahweh said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Verse 27. Yahweh said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of Yahweh with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that Yahweh had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed And when they heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go, 
a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer our sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily tasks each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. This is why you say, That is what you say, that is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. Go now and work. No straw will be given you. For you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce the number of bricks. Your daily task each day. They met Aaron, Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, Yahweh, look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to Yahweh and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to the people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Well, hearing the story, we can certainly understand the reaction of the Hebrew people, can we not? I mean, Moses comes to them. He says, God came to me and he told me to come and deliver you. And when he first talks to the Hebrew people, they're very excited, right? That's what we see at the end of chapter 4, right? It says they bow their heads and they worship. They're thankful that God has finally come to rescue them and to deliver them. And yet... At the end of the very next chapter, what do they have to say? They say, oh, the Lord judged between you and us, Moses. You've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. You've put a sword in his hand to kill us. And so even though initially they seem to have this great faith that the Lord was about to do something amazing, at the end of chapter 5, they see that 
It's not going to go quite as they expected. Life was going to be harder than it was before, rather than easier than it was before. And as a result, they actually come to doubt God and His salvation. They come to doubt God and His goodness. And in this way, the trouble that God brings upon them in the form of this extra work, this harsher slavery that Pharaoh lays upon them is the cause of their complaining to God and is the cause of their forgetting God's faithfulness. Now, big picture, what I believe this passage sets before us is just a very common pattern of God working in history, of God working in our own lives. That before he wants to rescue us from something, before he wants to bring about some kind of salvation for us, he often lets things get worse before they get better. Now, if our horizon of looking at things, if the only way we look at things is on the basis of how they feel to us, or how wealthy we become, or how good our bodies feel, or these sorts of things, then God would certainly be wrong to do this, would he not? I mean, to make us experience some kind of physical setback, maybe it is a setback in your career, maybe it feels like a setback in your spiritual life, maybe it feels like a setback in your health or any of these things. And again, if career is most important to you, or if health is most important to you, or any of these things then that kind of setback is indeed going to seem like evil to you, will it not? And in this way, what God is doing for the Hebrew people is he is revealing to them what is most truly and deeply in their hearts. Whether they mostly value some kind of physical liberation, right, freedom from Pharaoh, or whether they will rely upon the Lord and value Him, trust Him, even when things seem hard. Now, in order for us to not fall into the same trap that the people of Israel fell into, we ourselves have to recognize what is best for us, right? What is most important for us, where our eyes should be fixed, what our lives should be aiming towards. Only then will we be able to be steadfast, to be steady, even when we experience the sort of setbacks that Israel here experiences. Now, Christian theologians for millennia have had a word to identify what is that greatest end for mankind. What is it that we should most hope for? What is it that we should most fix our eyes on? Now, that word in theological terms is the beatific vision, the beatific vision. And this is important for us to understand, again, if we don't want to fall into the trap that Israel fell into. So what is the beatific vision? The beatific vision is what Scripture teaches we will all experience when we stand before God. Namely, when we stand before God, if we have come under the mercy of Jesus Christ, so we are no longer under God's judgment, but we are under God's mercy, when we finally stand before God on that last day, we will experience the beatific vision. That is, we will see God. And this is what we were made for. This is what all mankind was made for. We were made to behold God as He is. You see this clearly in 1 John 3, 2. 
John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. You see, this is our great hope, to see God as he is, right? Not to just experience wealth, not to just experience health, not to just experience career success or respect from others or a loving family or any of these things. No, what God made us for and what we should long for more than anything else is to see God as he is, the beatific vision. Scripture tells us in other places just how wonderful this will be. Psalm 1611 is maybe one of the most famous verses to describe this. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's how good it is to be near to God. Or consider Psalm 36, verses 7 to 9. It says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. See, beloved, all of us are waiting for that day. All of us are slowly, day by day, step by step, walking toward that day when in God's light we will see light and we will experience pleasure like we've never known from the fountain of his delights, from the fountain of his mercy and love. And so when we fix our eyes there, when we understand that that itself is our greatest good, is what we were made for, is the hope of our whole lives, then all of a sudden, whether our health is good or bad, takes less of an account. Whether our career is going well or not, takes less of an account. Whether our family life is as it worked out or not, whether our finances are good or not, all of a sudden we understand that everything we experience in this life is aiming us toward this one greater and more final end, the beatific vision, when we shall behold God as he is. Now, one mistake that we can often make when we think of that great end, when we think of that beatific vision, because we are right now these, these physical creatures that mostly know the world through our sense experience, right? Through our smell, our sight, our taste, our touch, right? The, this is how we know the world, through our senses. And so we can think of that day when we are going to stand before God, when we are going to see him as he is, as scripture says, and we can think that this is largely going to be a physical experience. Like we're going to see God with our physical eyes, or we're going to have some aroma, or there's going to be some way that we like touch him with our hands or something like that. And that's how we think we will most deeply experience God. And yet what Scripture tells us from beginning to end is that to really see God, to really have an experience of God, is not so much to see something with your physical eyes. Right? It's not like the beatific vision is going to be like seeing God in IMAX or something like that. Right? It's not like a physical experience. The way we most deeply see God is with the eyes of our soul. It is most fundamentally a kind of moral experience or spiritual experience or soul experience. Scripture often speaks as if our souls have eyes. 
as if our souls have taste buds, as if our souls can smell, that we can taste what is good, we can see what is beautiful. Again, not in the sense that we get a a physical sensation of those things, but in a more deeper, even more profound way than what our senses can experience, we get to see God, we get to behold God. And the reality that Jesus Christ came and taught us is that we can begin that experience right now. That is an experience called eternal life. And it begins here and now. We get a glimpse of God with the eyes of our soul as we see his goodness. And again, we march forward to that day when we will stand before God and we will get an experience of him with our souls that is so overwhelming that the joy and the wonder of that experience will outstrip any kind of pleasure that we could experience right now. It will be more wonderful than our wildest dreams. Now, God knows that he is launching us toward that day. God knows when that day is. He has that day prepared for us. And he knows everything that will happen between now and then. And so what God is in the business of doing now, what God is in the business of doing in this life with us right now is to prepare us for that day. He wants to so shape our souls right now, to so prepare our souls right now so that when we come to that first day of eternity, that first day of the thousands after thousands after thousands of years that will never end, that when we come to that day, that's when we will experience our greatest bliss and our highest joy. And so what does that mean for us right now? What does that mean for this life? Well, often it means that God intends for us to experience right now setbacks, for us to experience failures, for us to experience hardship. So that when that day comes, it will be all the sweeter. It will be all the more wonderful. We will be able to see even more clearly the goodness and the kindness of God precisely because we have tasted, we have experienced the hardship of life here below. And so know that regardless of what your hardship may be in life right now, God does not give you that hardship just because he's a mean God. Or just because he's too busy to pay attention to you and your problem, and so you're not important to him. No, he gives you that hardship right now because he is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. He is preparing for you an everlasting salvation, and he wants it to be sweet and beautiful. And so if that means you have to suffer right now, then God is kind to you. And giving you a measure of suffering right now, measuring it out perfectly, not an ounce more than you can handle, measuring it out to you so that when that glorious day comes, you can experience delight and joy beyond all comprehension. See, that is exactly what we see happening in Exodus chapter 5, is it not? God has already promised a salvation for the people of Israel. He has already told Moses that I will set this people free. He's even already told Moses that Pharaoh is not going to want to set this people free, that he will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not set the people free. And so God knows that it will be a long road until the people finally experience that ultimate liberation from slavery. And so what does he do at the outset? I think it's precisely so that the people of Israel 
can taste the full wonder of freedom, the full wonder of liberty, that he first makes them taste the full bitterness of slavery. You see, the people had been in slavery for hundreds of years. And they knew the bitterness of slavery. I mean, Exodus 1 tells us that they were crying out to God because of the harshness of their slavery. And not only was their slavery harsh, but we even learn in Exodus 1 of a Pharaoh who wanted to kill all the male infants among the Israelite people. And so he was casting them into the Nile so that a whole generation would die. I mean, this people knew suffering. You would think, God, why do you need to give this people any more suffering? And yet, evidently, God wanted them to know deep in their bones the joy of liberation, the joy of freedom. And how could they know that joy deeply in their bones? They could only know that joy deeply in their bones if they knew also deeply in their bones the horror of slavery. See, God did not want them to think light thoughts of their salvation. God did not want them to think like, oh, we're free, that was easy. Our slavery's done, let's move on with our lives. No, he wanted the redemption that he accomplished for them to be indelibly printed upon their souls. He wanted them to understand how glorious his redemption was, that they might give him all praise and honor for all the good things that he had accomplished. And so you see, it couldn't just be a sort of redemption that's something that they could just kind of see with their eyes, feel with their hands, right? It had to be a redemption that went down to the very marrow of their bones. It had to be a redemption that they felt in their souls. And just because God created us in the way that he did, if they were going to feel it that deeply, if they were going to be able to one day rejoice in God that fully, well, then he needed to first bring them low in order that they might go as high as he desired for them to go. Now, I've said before that this redemption that God accomplished for the people of Israel is intended to be an analog of our own redemption. The slavery that the people of Israel experienced, the slavery that the Jewish people experienced under Pharaoh, is intended to describe for us, is intended to give us a picture of our own sin and of death itself. And so in that way, when we read things like this about how the Hebrew people endured slavery, the sort of suffering that they experienced under slavery, when we think of how this applies to our lives, as I mentioned, I do think we can apply this more broadly to any kind of suffering we can experience, but most especially, I think we are to apply this to the horror of sin itself and to the suffering that we experience under sin. And indeed, I think Exodus is pointing us in this very direction. One of the most striking things about Exodus chapter 5 is it has much overlap. Many of the words that are used in Exodus chapter 5 are only used one other place in the book of Exodus. What is that one other place they're used? They're also used in Exodus chapter 32. Well, what happens there? In Exodus 32, that's where Moses comes down the mountain with the law in his hands. 
And when he comes down the mountain with a law in his hands, where does he find the people of Israel? He finds them worshiping a golden calf. And so he slams the law to the ground. He breaks the law. And then he curses out the people, right? That they would abandon God in such a way. And what does God do to the people of Israel? Well, this is where the Levites, the priests of Israel, are first installed as priests. And how are they installed as priests? They take up a sword in their hand and they kill 3,000 Israelites for their sin of idolatry. And that phrase where the Levites took up a sword in their hand and they killed 3,000 Israelites is the same phrase that we see in verse 21 of chapter 5. When the people of Israel say to Moses, Yahweh, look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh, his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. In other words, what Exodus is trying to teach us is that this slavery that Pharaoh was imposing upon the people of Israel, where they would have to produce these bricks and not even be given any straw, that that slavery is the same sort of slavery that we experience as human beings to the law. That when the law comes, the law makes demands upon us that are so stringent, that are so impossible for us in our sinfulness, that it actually brings about curse rather than blessing. It increases our hardship rather than decreasing our hardship. And I think that even this very image of making bricks without straw applies to our lives under the law. What are the, the bricks that we are supposed to do? We are supposed to make as servants of God. Well, the, the bricks that we are supposed to make is righteousness, is it not? We are supposed to do good deeds. We are supposed to keep the law. That is the, the bricks that the law intends for us to make. Perform the law. Do what God says. That's what the law says. And yet, what does the law do but deny us straw? What is the straw? Straw is the the motivation, the heart desire to do the right thing. You see, the law cannot give what it commands. The law comes to us and it brings death to us in the same way that Pharaoh, when he gives this command to make bricks without straw, brings death to the Israelite people, so the law brings death to us. This is precisely what we see in the New Testament as Paul himself is looking at this book of Exodus and he's interpreting what God was doing through the law. And so in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7, Paul writes, What shall we say, that the law is sin? He says, By no means. Yet, if if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So do you hear what the Apostle Paul is saying here? That apart from the law, apart from anyone outside of us telling us what we have to do, what we must perform, Sin lies dead. In other words, as long as we think we are directing our lives, as long as our choices, 
we really feel like our, our choices, that we're making up our own minds, we can be pretty happy people, right? But as soon as someone else comes along, whether it's God, whether it's mom or dad, whether it's anyone else, a boss, comes along and tells us, this is what you must do, right? Puts in front of us some kind of law, something that we must keep. What does our sinful nature do? Our sinful nature flares up and it says, who are you to tell me what to do? Right? The example that Paul gives in Romans 7 here is covetousness, right? We can look upon things that other people have and we can think, oh, those are nice things. And we can move on with our lives. We're, we're very happy. And yet, as soon as that thing that we wanted, as soon as somebody comes along and tells us, you cannot have that thing. <laughs> well, then what do our hearts do? All of a sudden, our hearts want that very thing, right? Before, we didn't care about it, but now someone has said, you cannot have it. And so now, what do we want more than anything else? That one thing that we were just told, we can't have. And Paul says it's not the law's fault. It's not that the law is wrong. The law was right to say we can't have that thing. The problem is the sinfulness in our hearts that as soon as somebody else tells us what to do, we reject it. And so the Apostle Paul says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Okay, and that's very much the experience that I think the people of Israel are having in this passage. They, they were under slavery, were they not? And they knew that their slavery was a terrible thing. And yet, you know, they were, they were getting along with it. They were, they were persevering through. But all of a sudden, this commandment came to Pharaoh. The commandment said, let my people go. Pharaoh did not like this commandment. He makes the slavery of the people worse. And all of a sudden, the people say, why did you do this? I wish you would never come here. And so when the commandment comes, their oppression increases. And the people feel as if they are going to die. And again, why does this happen? Well, in the context of Exodus, again, it happens because God wants to show them how great a salvation they will have. He wants them to feel their death. He wants them to feel the weight of their slavery before they can feel the glory, the beauty of their liberation. Beloved, this is exactly the same purpose that God intends the law to have in each of our lives. How is it that we can experience the joy of our salvation? How is it that we can know the glory of forgiveness that Christ has won for us, the glory of new resurrection life in Jesus Christ? I mean, we won't think that's a great thing if we thought, well, I've always been a pretty good person, you know, but now, now Jesus has come and that's just like icing on the cake, you know, he's just gotten me over the hump. Those few places where I was struggling, you know, he's helped me out there. So now I'm good, you know? That's seeing a very small salvation, is it not? It's seeing a very small thing that Christ Jesus did for you. And so what does God want you to do? What does God want you to know? Again, God wants you to know the fullness of your salvation. He wants you to know the majesty of your salvation, the wonder of your salvation. He wants you to have joy in your salvation. How can you know that? Again, deep in your bones, not just like theoretically or not just like, 
Yeah, that makes sense, right? But deep in your bones, how can you know that? Well, you can only know that if you have first experienced the crushing weight of the law. If you have first experienced just how terrible, how foul, how ugly, how repugnant your sin is. And how are you going to experience that? Well, you are going to experience that through the law. Through God telling you what is right and what is wrong. And then what are you supposed to do when that happens? What are you supposed to do when that message comes to you? When that message of what is right and what is wrong comes to you? Again, to experience the fullness of your salvation, what you are supposed to do is you are supposed to own the wrongness of what you have done. You are supposed to agree with the truth of God's law that you have been an evil person and that you have done a thousand things wrong. And the lower you go, the more willing you are to confess of your own sin, your own unrighteousness, your own iniquity, the higher God will be able to take you by showing you the forgiveness and mercy that he now offers in Jesus Christ. See, beloved, that is why in the church we should be a humble and a confessing people. You see, our human nature, when somebody comes and tells us we've done the wrong thing, that we've messed up in some way, Human nature, I know it from my own actions, I'm sure you all know it from your own actions, is to come up with a long list of excuses, right? Oh, well, you, I know that wasn't the right thing for me to do, but you have to understand, you know, this is how I was raised, you know, this is what my parents were like, and this is the situation I was in, and, you know, and this is the good that I was trying to accomplish, you know, so, so hey, show me, you know, cut me some slack, you know, I'm not that bad a person. You know, that's what we want to do whenever any sort of accusation comes against us. Again, whether it's accusation of God's word because his law is right, or whether, again, it's a spouse or a friend, a parent, maybe even your child is pointing something out to you, and what do you want to do? No, I'm really okay. You know, I'm not that bad. And sure, you can, you can hold that line. You can support your argument there in many ways, right? That's what, again, that's what our human flesh, that's what our human reason wants to do. Make us right in our own eyes. But beloved, I warn you, the more you go down that road, the more you reject the death and the suffering that God's law brings, the more you reject ownership over the wrong that you have done, the less you will feel the glory and the wonder of God's forgiveness. You see, God's forgiveness, the mercy that we receive in Jesus Christ, is most glorious when we understand that we have truly been devils. When we understand that we have sinned against a perfect and a holy God and we have no excuse And there is nothing to mitigate the wrong that we have done. We have chosen evil and we have done evil. And the only explanation for that is that our hearts are twisted and corrupt. And so the message of the gospel comes into that and says, even though you are worse than you could ever imagine, you are also more loved than you could ever dream. But you see, the more you think yourself worthy of love, the less you feel the weight of slavery, the less you feel the weight of sin, and the more you think, yeah, God should love me. I'm a pretty good person. 
You see how the less wondrous his love becomes? And so just in the same way that God lays this weight of slavery upon the Israelites so that when that day of salvation comes, they will be able to sing and dance for joy in the same way God wants to lay upon each one of us the weight of our sin. So that when the message of the gospel comes, so that we, when we remember that Jesus Christ took my sin upon the cross, when he paid the penalty that I owed because of my own foolishness, my stupidity, my iniquity, my evil, when he took that, I was made free forever. I was forgiven of all sin. I was made an adopted child of God. I was made a brother of Jesus Christ. I was given a new family. I was given an eternal hope. All of a sudden, that becomes the greatest news in the world because we have understood the weight of our sin. And so, beloved, I encourage you this morning, I exhort you this morning, to listen to the law of God. Listen to the rightness of the law of God. When your own conscience speaks to you and condemns you, do not try to rattle off a list of excuses. Don't try to justify yourself in your conscience. No, admit, this is evil in me. Because it is possible, beloved, through Jesus Christ, through the blood that Jesus Christ shed, it is possible to be completely evil and to be completely loved. That is the beauty of the gospel. You see, God's love does not scale with us according to how good we become, according to how many good deeds we perform. His love was set upon us When we were still sinners, his love was set upon us from before the foundation of the world. We were chosen in Jesus Christ from before the foundation of the world. And so now, what do we do? We admit, yeah, I'm a terrible sinner. I'm a no good, rotten human being. And you know what? God loves me anyway. And when we can acknowledge that, when we can see the wonder of God's love in contrast to the death, the stench of our own sin, then all of a sudden we can realize the freedom that comes through Jesus Christ. And what does that freedom produce? That freedom does produce righteousness, beloved. When we know the joy of salvation, when we know the joy of the Father's love for us in spite of our sin, all of a sudden what happens in our hearts is we suddenly want to serve the Father from joy, from love, from thankfulness, rather than the way that the Israelites never could keep the law. We don't keep the commandments of God now from obligation, We don't keep the commandments of God now just because, well, they're right. We have to do the right thing, so I guess I better just buckle down and do it. No, we do the right thing because we know the goodness and the favor of God. So now, when God's law comes to us, it doesn't come with a sword like it came in Exodus 32 where 3,000 were killed because they could not keep this heavy obligation. God does not demand that we produce bricks and deny a straw just like Pharaoh did. No. 
God says, yes, produce bricks, but I will give you as much straw as you need. I will give you everything you need to produce as many bricks as you could possibly want because I will be with you because my love will not depart from you. And that is all the motivation you need in order to keep my perfect word. John Bunyan had a great little poem that he wrote that I think captured this so well. He said that the law demands that we make bricks while denying a straw. And yet, what better news the gospel brings? It bids us fly and gives us wings. And so that is what we experience when we can acknowledge our sin. When we can see in light of the horror of that sin, we see the goodness of God. And then all of a sudden, we're given wings to fly to him. And we know that in Jesus Christ, we are so secure that he is with us despite all of our sins, every failure, every wrongdoing. We confess to him. We turn to him again. He remains with us still. And we march forward in the grace, in the favor of God, knowing that he will give us strength to fight new fight on a new day and never give up because of his steadfast love and because of his faithfulness. And again, if it's that way because of the law and because of our own sinfulness, how much more is it that way? That when our health fails, when our career fails, when our finances fail, that he is with us still and he will deliver us and he will help us and he will bring us to that glorious day when we get to see him face to face. And so don't get discouraged, beloved, when you experience setbacks, when you experience the weight of sin in your own heart. Or again, when you experience any kind of physical weight in your life, don't get discouraged. God does not hate you when those things happen. Those are God's means of lifting you up that you might see the beauty and the perfection of his love. And so own your sin this morning. Grieve the the hardships that you experience this morning. Bring them to God and know that God is able to exalt you. He's able to show you favor, even in the midst of the hardship and the suffering that you know. Would you go to the Lord with me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the great redemption that you have worked for us, even greater than the redemption that you were going to work for the Hebrew people in the book of Exodus. Lord, you have not only delivered us from physical slavery, you have delivered us from slavery to sin. You have delivered us from fear of death. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to know this morning just how glorious that freedom is. Help us to know just how terrible that slavery to sin is. Help us to acknowledge how we have been in league with the devil, how we have agreed with his slavery of us. And as we do that, Lord, would you help us also to know the mercy, the grace that is poured out through the blood of Jesus Christ upon us. So we thank you for this favor, God. We come to you now as a people with our prayers of confession, with our prayers of petition for the world around us. And so would you hear us, God, as we pray to you now.